Nelson Mandela once said that education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. On this podcast, we will be exploring and discussing issues of social justice and equity in education. On this episode of The Most Powerful Weapon, we will be hosting a panel of educated guests who will be discussing COVID-19 and school reopenings in the fall. I'm your host, Andrea, and I'm here with an awesome panel of educated guests from across the state of Colorado. So first, I'm going to have each person um, just go around and introduce themselves. Tell us uh, your first name, what you teach, and what is learning supposed to look like for you in the fall? I would like to caution that as we know that plans are still changing. Um, Even today, I've heard of districts that are changing plans or some districts haven't announced plans. So feel free to share what you know uh, right now and um, just tell us a little bit about yourself. So we'll go ahead and start with Aaron. My name is Aaron. I teach out here in Fort Morgan. It's a rural community about 77 miles northeast of Denver. It's about a town of 15,000. And I teach language arts for the alternative high school. Um, It's about a student body of about 45. So I have anywhere from five to 10 kids in my class. Our opening is not yet set. We've got a three-stage plan. We've got three different colors that, depending on our infection rate, will just determine what our classrooms will look like but we have not received guidance on where we're at currently and how we will transition. So there's, there's things that are set in place, but there's also things that are kind of nebulous and not really locked in. And so we're, we're still working through that. Um, we have an interim superintendent because our superintendent gave us six weeks, six days notice to leave. Uh, so that's been an exciting adventure. Um, so as a district, we're, we're still working through, you know, getting direction and, and figuring out where we're going. So there's some things we know and there's some things we don't know. And it's, it's exciting and challenging and a little nerve wracking, but we're, we're confident we'll be able to pull it off. And let's head over to Allie. Hi, uh, my name is Allie. <clears throat> I've been teaching the last six years, uh, fifth grade at a Title I school in Denver. And at the end of the school year, I got a new position. So I'll be in a new school and in a new district. Um, teaching emerging bilinguals in kindergarten through third grade. Um, Our plan in the new district, at least for K through five, is going to be a full hybrid. So students are going to be assigned a group one or group two, and they'll be attending school Monday, Wednesday, and every other Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday, and every other Friday, um, with the expectation for real-time synchronous learning happening virtually when they're not in school. So I expect uh, that first week before school actually starts, we're going to be doing a lot of professional development around that so that we have um, hopefully a a cohesive and intentional and uh, as strong a start as possible given the uncertain circumstances we're finding ourselves in at the beginning of this year. Travis? Hi, I'm Travis. Um, I am going into 10 years of teaching as an elementary school teacher um, in the Denver metro area. And uh, I'm currently teaching social studies um, at a large middle school where five elementary schools feed into it. Um, I've taught Title I and um, I'm endorsed in uh, working with gifted learners. And so I have a heart for those uh, students that fall in those categories in the five sections of social studies that I teach. 
I thought that we were going back um, full time, but then things just changed. Like even in the process of you guys inviting me on, things changed to uh, a later start date. Uh, with two weeks um, online remotely, I guess, to see that there's no new cases. And then starting up uh, September 8th, K5 is going uh, uh, face-to-face. 6th through 12th is uh, allowing students to either stay online remote or go into a hybrid model, um, where I think we'll have a block schedule um, that'll alternate from day to day. Um, And yeah, I don't know. this, This is all still up in the air and still hasn't kind of uh, become a clear picture for anybody yet. Yeah, I think a lot of us can relate to that uncertainty. Uh, Jenna, I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, hi. Um, so I'm Jenna. I teach eighth grade language arts at a K-8 Title I in Westminster. Um, as of right now, my principal told me it might change, but as of right now, we're planning on going back full time. Um, teachers start on the 11th and kids come back the 20th. In, I think each school in our district got to kind of make their own plan, but my principal, um, our leadership team decided that teachers would get cohorts of 25 kids. Um, and so basically I'll be responsible for teaching my lesson and recording it and then making my students watch the recordings of all the other teachers. And I'm basically like a bona fide tutor. So that will be interesting. <laughs> Hopefully we'll have a different plan because I'm really bad at math. Um, I remember when the new school that I work at now hired me and they said, you're going to be a math teacher. I was so nervous. So I just want to offer my support that you can do this. And if you need anything, feel free to reach out. You got this. <laughs> Thank you. So much. I'm going to need support. <laughs> uh, Tristan, I'd love to hear from you. All right. Hi, I am Tristan. I am entering my 18th year of teaching. I'm in a large school district, and similarly to what Travis and Allie have said, our school district will be doing K through 5, 100% in person. Um, 6 through 12 will be online for two weeks, and then we're moving into the hybrid model. Um, I'm actually on the leadership advisory team for my school, so we had a meeting yesterday, and even from yesterday to today, things have changed. But the idea is, is that kids are in cohorts and um, when they're in person, they'll be in groups of 12. Um, they're gonna stay in that cohort. They're gonna eat in that cohort. They are gonna follow each other the entire time through the quarter. Um, so those 12 kids are gonna get to know each other very, very well. At the same time, like Ali said, we need to be teaching asynchronous Synchronicity, well, however you would say that, is that basically I am teaching online and in person at the same time um, to the entire cohort, so the entire 25. And so right before this podcast, I was also given our mandatory training schedule since we are delayed one week. And it looks like teachers will be in training most of the days to understand what is this model supposed to look like. Um, What are the expectations surrounding that and so forth? I do want to preface, though, that the district has offered that students, um, families that do not want to return, they can have the remote option. And so they can go online. Um, What I don't think is being advertised and what is maybe not very fair to the parent community is that those are not the teachers that are in the schools there through the virtual 
uh, school. And unless that reaches a certain threshold of students, um, they would be getting a different teacher. And so I do think that there's a lot of concern in the um, community because that isn't being shared or there's being pieces of it. But stay tuned. I'm sure I'm going to get an email soon and things will be changing. But that's the nature of this virus is that we need to be flexible and adaptable. And that's what teachers are phenomenal at. Yeah, if we hear an email ding during this podcast, don't worry, guys. It's just all of us. New plans. It's totally fine. Uh, well, I'd like to bring my co-host David in. Uh, we work at the same school together, so I would love for him to share a little bit about our school and um, kind of what our school is doing. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Andrea. Uh, my name is David. I'm a co-host of The Most Powerful Weapon. I've uh, been teaching for, this will be my 11th, 11th or 12th year of teaching. And we are in a K-12 charter school. And we don't have a plan yet. We don't have a plan yet. Uh, the district that we're a part of is has yet to make their final plan. And while we have independence to make the plan we want to, we like to be in line with, with the larger district that we're in. Uh, so right now, we've delayed the start of our school by two weeks to see how everything shakes out. Um, usually, we start early and have extended quarter breaks in a shorter summer, so it's more like year-round school. Uh, that's, that would have had us the kids start on the 3rd, so that's been pushed to the 17th. Uh, every family got a survey whether uh, they would like their... Uh, student to be there full-time in a hybrid mode or um, full online. And we don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but I, my feeling is, is that I'll be teaching some students on fully online. I'll be teaching uh, some students in a hybrid setting uh, and some students will be there every day. The, the, the way we're going to work it is, is also with a cohort. Uh, we'll have a cohort of students who will come to the same advocacy or homeroom. They'll eat in that homeroom. They'll go to recess together. They'll do everything together. And as of now, teachers are going to uh, rotate through classes. So teachers will, uh, will rotate through the four different classes that we have. Like, like all of you said, uh, it's, it's up in the air. Uh, we have somewhat of an idea of what we're doing, but not exactly. We know that it can and I think will change multiple times throughout the course of this year, depending on the infection rate and what happens. So just listening to you all, and as a teacher myself, we plan, we prepare, we get things in order so that we can teach. And a lot of you have said that like things are uncertain. And so I'm wondering, I'd like to ask uh, you how, how you're doing with uh, setting in this uncertainty. What are you planning? And what does that look like for you? So if anybody wants to jump in, feel free. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, so I'm kind of in this really weird place where content content wise, I feel super confident right now. So right when we got sent home, I signed up for three different tech integration classes um, through Adam State, like Copilot. 
And because of that, I feel like I was already kind of planning on doing a flipped classroom model. And so with that, I'll already have those videos planned, but I'm definitely worried about the instructional piece of teaching when, if I have other teachers' videos that I'm kind of having to tutor that, or they're watching mine, it's like teachers do a lot of on the spot, like redirection and kind of judging where kids are at. And you can't really do that with a video lesson. So content, super confident with content, but I'm really, I'm, I'm concerned about the instructional aspect of education. I think for me, something that I've spent a great deal of time over the summer is really thinking about the mental health and social emotional pieces of our students. So anytime I have the opportunity to speak to my SEL or recent articles on engaging students online, how do you make those real connections, although they're virtual? I think it is possible. I think it's feasible. Um, very much with Jenna, I feel very confident with, with the instructional piece, but I also am wondering for those of us that have to be in the schools full time, that burden of responsibility on teachers for the safety and health of our students has become even more. You know, when I started, it was right at the cusp of, of Columbine and um, you know, we started these active shooter drills and, and that was a reality, putting our safety and risking. And it just seems like as, as the years go, the responsibilities become more and more and that veil becomes heavier and heavier. And so I will be 100% honest. I believe that my students' health and safety is going to be the priority. Um, academics is going to be secondary because I believe that that's also what the parents and the community are expecting of the schools is that if they are to trust the public schools and send their students, then that needs to be at the forefront. I need to understand those protocols, but also that social and emotional piece. And so I've been reading some fantastic articles and, and speaking with our SEL and um, so that's kind of where my head is wrapped around, and I think it's actually been very helpful for me also as an educator that we have all had our breaking points during the summer um, with our families, with our own children, and, and this is in an unprecedented time. And so we have to give ourselves some grace just as much as our students, but to remind ourselves that those benchmarks, those academic benchmarks were human constructs. Those are the ones we have put there. And so we need to remind ourselves and also remind those that are in charge that our students are not going to be where they were supposed to be, but our students are going to be fine. And so it's really about the well-being, to enjoy learning, um, to feel safe. And, um, but that will be my role. And, and so I've been kind of practicing and reading as much as I can during this time. So um, I... Um I guess I could piggyback off of that uh, a little bit just on how crazy it was um, trying to help my students that I know were really struggling, especially in the social emotional department. Um, Also, at the same time, I'd already been implementing a flipped classroom model. Um, So I was very comfortable um, with using, you know, uh, Google Classroom and uh, using different online tools and supplementing. But what's different about all this is the flipped, you know, model meant there was follow-up and more work time in the classroom. And 
I didn't have that. And that was the hardest thing to deal with, I guess, because I, I, uh, maybe 30% of my students regularly checked in during the scheduled times that I would, you know, set the other 50%, you know, were kind of at their own pace. And then there was this 20% that it, it took counselors and uh, social workers and just a lot of people involved in trying to track down, um, missing students. And I think that's my, um, my biggest fear is going back to that place of where it was just so obviously inequitable, something completely counter to the spirit of what public education um, is all about. And so, yeah, so for planning um, and trying to not repeat that experience, I, I kind of figured already whether no matter what model went, I was going to aim to um, make online kind of the bedrock. Um, what I haven't factored in is how to figure out what the gaps are already from last year. And I, I guess I think as I take my time to really try to build that rapport with students as they come in, um, it'll be more focused on, you know, kind of allowing them to self-assess themselves on where they're at and just me kind of getting a sense of what they got. Cause I mean, essentially they all lost that last quarter of school. So to, uh, to focus in, I guess, for planning, um, it's, uh, it's mainly just trying to keep enough margin, I guess, uh, to be ready to be flexible and adapt uh, to the needs as they become apparent. I'm curious if any of you worked in a district where access to technology was an issue last year. Um, I know my school, we were already one-to-one, so I was very fortunate to, that students could come grab a laptop if they needed, or a lot of them had one at home. Um, but I'd be curious to hear from anybody about that. I can speak to that. So our district recently went one-to-one this last year. Um, it was a part of our initiative to, to really ramp it up. And what we discovered is that we didn't send the Chromebooks home at first until obviously we got sent home for COVID. We discovered that a good number of our community doesn't have access to Wi-Fi. Um, so we had to get a, get in touch with our local wireless provider and say, look, can we, can we contract out with you for wireless hotspots? Um, the other thing is, is that a lot of our, some of our parents and some of our community members with our students, they're not technologically trained. They're not, they're not aware of how like to support their kids using Google Classroom or using our, the new system we were halfway into introducing Canvas. There was not a lot of knowledge on the parent side and the community member side. And so that now going into this year is a big push for us because we're supposed to be all in with Canvas, which is a learning management system. And as teachers, we're, we're getting our hands on it. But now the transition is if we end up going to online learning at some point in this, in this year because of the outbreak situation, we're going to have to figure out a way to help our parents know how to use that and to support their kids. And so that's, it's a hard thing in a rural community sometimes because we think, oh, the kids are digital they know these things. They're just their natural. Their natural habitat is the digital world, but they only know Snapchat. They know Instagram. They know social media. They don't. <laughs> their digital abilities do not extend to the intricacies of Google Sheets and Google Slides and Google Docs. It's not a. And then then you multiply that within their parental units at home, be it family, whoever's at home with them. They're not exactly going to be. They may not be able to support them. Oh, how do I do this in Google Google Docs? Well, I don't know. And so there's. There's just a lot of, I think, training we're going to have to do and teaching we're going to have to do in some way with our community to help support our kids and support their learning and support their being comfortable being back in school because, you know, 
that's a huge part of it. Kind of what you guys have mentioned, our kids, social, emotional situation coming in is it's going to be an interesting experience for us as an alt ed school. We've got kids who already don't want to be there and don't want, don't see school as a useful thing. And a danger is they've spent the last five or six months seeing that in their opinion, yeah, school isn't really needed. We could, we could, we didn't have to be in school and we whatever it was fine. And so we're going to be battling that and, and trying to figure out how to get the kids buy-in to get back into school and to do the work. So I, I've been calling this whole COVID situation a hot mess for the better part of five to six months. And it just continues. The hot mess isn't, it's not getting cleaned up. It's still just one big hot mess. Um, to go back to the, the technology question in our district, I've, I personally felt like our district was really responsive in trying to get technology out to families and being supportive and troubleshooting when issues arose. Um, that being said, it still took eight weeks for a couple of my students and I to connect with each other. And um, I would say there were several that we still probably didn't have a lot of meaningful learning ever happening. Another thing that I, I think is going to be really huge as we start the school year is the communication piece especially with families uh, who do not speak uh, English as their home language. I think it's really vital that we have staff who are able to help reach out and build connections when, um, when the teacher, who's that point of contact, doesn't share a home language because there's a lot of important conversations that need to happen to find out what families need. And that goes with technology, but that also goes with a lot of the other social services that that education is is and has been for a long time. So I think something that the school I was at did really well is that communication piece, but I think everyone everywhere is going to have to step it up even more because we're not just at the end of the year, like just survive and get through this. We're starting a new year, and I think the, the expectation for rigor and structure and meeting students' needs as well as the most important thing Tristan said, keeping them safe and healthy is it's all on our plates. We, uh, and the technology piece too, we had just gone one-to-one and we had people to help. So we, we replaced Chromebooks when they, they went, they were gone. Uh, we contacted Comcast and, if there was an outstanding bill that prevented for the internet connection, got them to make an exception for the last two months of school. And what was so frustrating was despite replacing devices and despite getting them uh, set up with Wi-Fi, there was uh, still a lack of engagement. Um, and because of just certain family situations, just not having that um, uh, accountability, um, whether, you know, just it wasn't possible because of uh, parents being essential uh, workers and not being home, um, whether that student was, you know, be, had become the primary caretaker or whatever the, the reason be, it just, it, it, it didn't work very well. And just kind of going off that another, I feel like a lot of our, my kids, at least it was between my kids and the parents that everyone was just drinking water out of a fire hose. And like, it was just too much, like, there's internet issues, there's family issues, they don't know how they're going to pay their bills. And then on top of that, the parents had to trust that their kids were doing it when they said they were getting on and doing their work and kind of maneuvering all the different, like I probably was using 
10 different online resources. So my kids would have to go, you know, to our district resource and then IXL and then these reading programs. So I think it was just a lot at once that we all got hit with. Yeah, I think a lot of you are kind of mentioning similar themes. So I'm hearing a lot of uh, discussion around social, emotional, uh, well-being of our students and mental health being a big concern, um, as well as the academic side of students when they're at home, they have a lot else on their plate. And so it makes the learning and the academic side a lot harder to complete. I know for me, because I teach middle schoolers, a lot of them tend to be the older siblings. So if they're helping their younger siblings to do that learning um, the best that they can, you know, it makes it harder for them to get their work done as well. Yeah, I think a lot of you are kind of mentioning similar themes. So I'm hearing a lot of uh, discussion around social, emotional, uh, well-being of our students and mental health being a big concern, um, as well as the academic side of students when they're at home, they have a lot else on their plate. And so it makes the learning and the academic side a lot harder to complete. I know for me, because I teach middle schoolers, a lot of them tend to be the older siblings. So if they're helping their younger siblings to do that learning um, the best that they can, you know, it makes it harder for them to get their work done as well. Um, so I wanted to ask, because one of the big arguments for reopening schools is that this lack of mental health is hurting our students. So a lot of you have probably heard, um, I think it was the American Pediatric Association uh, or something like that came out and said that they thought schools should reopen because students' lack of social interaction was harming them. I know they came out later and added to that when it's safe, uh, which is really important to note. But I'm curious, what do you say to community members who uh, think that schools should open in the fall um, because of the lack of mental health uh, resources for our students virtually? I'll be the one that comes out with the controversial and the one that's going to get me in trouble. But I actually I did a I did a conversation with a friend of mine a couple about a week ago, and we talked about this. And I'm of the belief that our kids and their mental health and their social emotional and their care is the most important thing that we do. I mean, yeah, we teach standards. Yeah. We teach curriculum. Yeah. We teach those things, but we're the, we're the people that notice the bruises. We're the people that notice the injuries. We notice they're not doing well. We notice the little parts where, Hey, this kid has, he's been acting out the last couple of days. What's going on? I need to figure this out. Yes, there is risk in having us back in the building. Yes, there is risk in getting kids back. And there are processes and policies in place to prevent infection and nothing is perfect. But my duty as a teacher, again, optimistic, idealistic third-year teacher coming into play here. But the kids and their safety and health is part of my responsibility. And yes, it's a double-edged sword. But I have to be there to make sure they're okay as a part of my duty within their life. Their parents have their responsibility, their people they live with, but also as a teacher, I have a responsibility to make sure that I feel my role of making sure they're safe, that they're okay, that they're talked to, that they're engaged, that they're comforted, that they're all those things that they need from us as teachers in addition to the teaching. Is it a perfect answer? No. And there's certainly holes in my argument, but I view it as that's my job. There are things that I noticed in the last two years with my kids in my sixth grade class if I hadn't been there, they wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been good. They would have gone on and the emotional pieces, the depression and all the stuff that was wrecking them at that point would have continued. I had, I had two kids have mental breakdowns in the middle of one of my classes this last year at the same time. Had they not been in my room, had they not been with me 
or been with a teacher who was able to reach out and say, Hey, go, go in the corner, go color. Let me like take a breath. Like you can step out or, Hey, let me talk to you for a second. Would they have been capable of handling that on their own? And I, I don't think so. I'd like to hope so. But, and again, it's not a popular answer and it's not an answer that that's going to stand up under scrutiny, but it's an answer that it's like, I have, this is going to sound really cranky, really weird, but I have a sacred duty as a teacher and I'm not saying that I'm holy or that I've got, but it's that job has a responsibility in the community. It is a responsibility to the students. And that's something that I hold very, very close to myself. And I don't know, that's <laughs> again, I'm probably the minority and I accept that, but it's, it's a thing. I, I hear your heart. I applaud your heart. Uh, that's uh, it's definitely uh, my heart as well. And um, though that's it interesting though too um not saying you're wrong and that i don't disagree with you because those are all the same values that i have um it's just interesting at how like where the line like how covid has sort of just kind of put things in the context where it's like where does the line fall you know with what's within my power and whatnot as i think about like um you know i always had my students who were you know regularly you know requesting you know appointments with the counselors um, you know, that, you know, is handling classroom. I went online and I would have a student who wasn't doing any work, but he was always chatting with me every day about the most random things. And I always, and because I thankfully had a rapport with him already and knew him, would always allow the chat to continue because sometimes it would lead somewhere um, uh, productive and insightful so that I knew how to help him. Um, but there were also moments this this past year where we had to have cops go go to a house because of students talking with each other and passing on, you know, not healthy states. And to not just purely go off of rumor, I guess, but I also with my attendance check-in kind of thing and where there are assignments, I made a Google form, like a branching Google form that would do that. And their exit out of the form was always a social emotional question. And for the most part, you know, you know, kids were just really bored. Um, or just, you know, annoyed with parents or siblings. Um, but when I was able to take those, you know, daily logged in, you know, social emotional temperature checks and then match it up with what other students were sharing, um, it, it definitely, you know, caused some scary moments for students that we kind of already knew about. And then I guess that's really gets to the heart of it. I don't think all students are necessarily, um, you know, becoming mentally unhealthy because of the situation. I just think those students who um, have already struggled with that, you know, this just became a catalyst for amplifying and creating bizarre context and, 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 and removed us from that front line of being able to uh, see it and catch it. So I, I hear your heart on that. And then at the same time, I know I had to face with, at what point is it outside of my control? And at what point have I, I can I say I, I've done all that I can do? And I don't know if any teacher can truly answer that with the kind of heart that that, that was just expressed. Um, I'm going to put David on the spot real quick. So I know one thing we um, talked about, there was an article we read that talked about uh, basically utilizing the school building for different things. So Travis was just talking about how it's not necessarily all students that are having um, these social, emotional or mental health needs. So is there a way to reutilize the school building? Um, so David, if you want to comment on sort of a little bit about that article and what your thoughts were around that. Sure. Uh, the, the premise, well, the article started with this idea that a lot of, well, a, a number of people are looking at the situation as an either or. 
Um, either we do school online or we do school in person. And the author was trying to shift that from either or to both and to say, uh, instead of doing either online or in person, we do both and we do more. What, what else can we do? And in the article, and it's in line with uh, the comments that Travis and Aaron have made, is that keeping students away from school is traumatizing, especially for the most uh, marginalized students that we have. However, bringing students to school can also lead to trauma as well. We don't know what bringing students to school is going to do to COVID infection rates. Some of our most marginalized students have the least, the least access to healthcare. The studies have shown that uh, marginalized communities and people of color have been dying more from COVID. And so, you know, what is the trauma of having family members or teachers become sick, people that care about those students and take care of those students? And so uh, she came to the point in the article in that some students need to come to school, but most students don't, <laughs> you know, and utilizing um, school for the most marginalized, for the students that have special needs, for the students that don't have access to food, that might be in unsafe situations, the students who uh, truly find school to be their safe haven. And then, as Travis mentioned uh, in his comment, that not, not every student is going to be affected in the same way. And are there students that do okay online? Long-term health effects of COVID, infection rates, we, we don't know yet, right? Because we closed down schools and we haven't had students get together in, in large numbers to see what happens. Uh, we can look to studies from other parts of the country and they're conflicting, right? Some countries have opened up and they say, oh, you know, there's no increased infection rates. Students don't transmit the disease. And then there uh, was a case in Israel where a lot of students at school uh, contracted uh, COVID-19. So uh, this idea of what students most needs the school in person, what students can learn online and using school in a new way where students uh, get what they need while keeping teachers and students and the community, right, as safe as possible. I was just going to add, I think no matter how we return to school, that it's important to acknowledge that whatever it looked like before, it's not going to return to normal. And I don't know that all of us, even myself, or the community, parents, kids, have really grasped that. And so there's this wish to go back to school and get back to the social interactions and be with your friends and your teachers and learn together. And whatever we do in person is not going to look like that. For me, I think I have this concern that that once we get back there in person, there's going to be this false sense of security and safety from students and teachers, and we're going to get sucked into that relationship with our students and that social distancing that we know is helping is going to fall a little bit to the wayside. You know, you're going to 
get a little closer to students. You're going to do some of the things you're not supposed to do because you feel comfortable with them and you want to help them and they need your help right there or they need to work with each other. Uh, so I'm, I'm a little concerned about getting lured into that false sense of security and that desire to go back to normal since we're there physically in person, but knowing that like the whole situation has actually changed and how to, to try to remind myself, always be living in that state of, I can't get that close to you. Like, I can't breathe on you. Just all, all those things in addition to what, what we're thinking and feeling and doing in the classroom all day, all week anyway. Kind of what Allie is saying about not being normal is having conversations uh, with parents. Um, my, my kids play tennis and soccer right now, so I'm kind of with the soccer moms and they're chit-chatting about school and making their decisions. And they'll ask me and they'll say, well, what are you doing for your kids? And, and what do you think? And, and you know, my, my candid response really is, is more like, you need to know your student you know what's best and there is no right or wrong. It's just in the moment. And so um, for what I do may, maybe working for my kids, but that may not be what's best for yours. But one thing that is constantly brought up is, well, my student needs to go because of the social reasons. And I'm thinking as the teacher, um, you know, I know social is part of part of the education, but if you're sending your school in the fall, you're not doing team building activities. You're not doing trust falls. You're not doing, you're not eating with your, your best friends. You're, you are in a cohort where you need to be socially distant. We're teachers are going to be instructing as much as we can and so we can get as much as out as what we can with our students when we are face to face but it isn't for social reasons necessarily and so I am a firm believer that I do think education is social um, but we are in this uncertain unprecedented time and so um, when we think about social emotional health there's also the physical health and so you're asking to give one for the other. And so I don't see, um, I see that argument being said, and I don't think there's a right answer because you're, you're going to switch one for one at, at times. And so, but anyway, like I said, going back to Allie, it, it won't be back to normal. Um, I'm teaching a, a GT camp next week uh, for our district. And <laughs> we can't do team building. They can't be next to each other. They can't share materials. They can't be in partner groups. They, so the whole idea that we've been taught for so long is yes, teamwork, work in teams, share responsibilities. This is a lot of independent learning that we're asking them to produce, but yet they are still kind of speaking to one another. And so, um, Anyway, I just I, I was thinking about the soccer fields yesterday and running into some parents talking to me about that. And and so I do think that that is um, a great question. Um, but I think we're switching it one for one. Thanks, Tristan. Recalls another article where it's like the the push to go back to school for the social reasons. We won't find those things at school when we go back exactly like I'm saying oh well I'm trying to think of all the ways that I can give feedback to a student six feet away in a mask 
and read their emotions and do group work and have them get to know each other and go to recess, right? And so once again, you know, trauma comes in many forms. Like what, what's, tra- what's traumatic to one student staying home from school, coming to school in, in a hybrid model where everybody's wearing masks and nobody can get closer than six feet and everybody's facing the same direction. They're not sitting around tables. They're not looking at each other. They're not breathing on each other. They're sitting, you know, facing the same way um, with whatever cohort they end up based on their needs of their family, not based on who their friends are. It's just, it, it's just going to be very, um, I think, challenging to deliver uh, instruction to, in, in multiple modalities uh, in a socially distanced way. And how it all plays out is unknown. So this idea, I think it's great advice to give, is that like you, you need to know your child and you need to know uh, what they need and, and ultimately make a decision without all the, all the information. Um, I know one thing that I'm a bit nervous about that I've seen uh, in a lot of teacher like community groups that I'm a part of is just this idea of building that classroom community with your students, um, but doing so either with the, whether you're in person being socially distant, like Tristan said, that's going to be very different than um, we always did like team building activities. And I always did the human knot, which is, you know, you grab everybody's hands and you try to unknot yourself. And I'm like, okay, that was always such a great activity. Uh, yeah. I can't do that now. Now with COVID. So what do you guys think that'll look like this year in terms of building classroom community? I know a lot of that is just, um, as teachers, we have our own personality and we get to know our students and we start interacting with them and we build that community through those like little interactions. But I know a lot of teachers are feeling nervous about how to do this virtually or how to do this while being socially distant. Would you guys have any advice or do you guys have any thoughts or ideas, things that you plan to do this year? I'm curious to hear. You know, my daughter is, uh, one of my daughters is, was in fourth grade. And so we went to remote learning and this is a second year teacher. And I was absolutely blown away day after day how she continued to create this community. Um, She had morning meetings, everyone logged in and she would have the question of the day and she had it on her board right here. She kept with a lot of the same routines that she had that was predictable for kids. And I think that that's key is that kids find security in the routine and in the structure. Um, the other thing that she did was she had lunch bunch. So during her lunches, she would have them do a craft while they're eating lunch. And so during the morning meeting, she'd say, if you guys want to uh, join us for lunch, I need you guys to have three different colors, um, a piece of white paper, and some other random object and they would as they're eating they would be creating this thing and at first I thought you know I bet there's only like three or four kids that show up there were like 18 this was an everyday thing and so what I'm reading is you can still build connections with kids you can still have one-on-one conversations you can still have small group you can still do sharing um, you can still, I, I'm sure you guys experience the, the tours of the rooms or the dogs or the pets. Um, kids love to talk about themselves. And so I, 
we don't need to lose that. You know, we may be vert, you know, in, in any way, this might be cool. You get to see what's in their room on um, what they're willing to share, what they're eating. Um, you know, I remember seeing grandparents walking behind the student and saying, who's that guy, you know, and, and I, I think that we can embrace the situation and still build those relationships with kids. And so I think that that's key. And I know that from my meeting yesterday, my administrator was very clear on that. The first two weeks that we are remote, we are building strong relationships with our kids. Because if they have the relationship, they are going to be tuning in to our online classes. And so they're going to want to share. And I think that that's so important that let's not lose sight of that. And so um, just as much as you guys have been doing virtual happy hours or virtual coffee chats, that doesn't mean that that can disappear. So, um, but I cannot say more about my daughter's teacher. Oh my gosh, um, fantastic. And so I'm stealing all of the things that she has done. Um, and I hope you guys do too. I, I love that. That's kind of where I was uh, hoping to go to is that uh, some of the PDs that I've uh, found online, national PDs, I think that was like next gen uh, personal finance, which, you know, got into pedagogy and just different things with this virtual aspect and um, engagement was the key thing on like how to build engagement and how consistency of being on time and then just even the way that you connect like I, I look back and I think I was probably too static too one one way with them in it um, and but rather the the instructor modeled how you can almost like a host right like what we're kind of doing right now with zooms as a host you just keep it moving and you keep the kids pulling things up and uh, they even had us just as teachers you know, going through the process of folding paper, you know, hamburger, hot dog, until we ended up with eight squares and then uh, led us into building like a little mini magazine of sorts of just drawings or things we wrote down based on certain topics and, and then just sharing, you know, whether it was just through the camera or whatnot, just little things like that, that all of a sudden helped me feel like I was actually connecting with other people in this professional development. Yeah, I... That's so a lot of my PDs, I also ran into like really cool ideas. There was one where everyone was got on and they said, pick someone and draw them. So you like drew what you were seeing in their screen and then we got to share. And so I do think that those cool activities do really connect our kids. I think one thing that I know, at least for my population is a lot of them live in really poor living conditions and they're kind of, I'm, I ran into kids that were like so embarrassed that they wouldn't turn on their mic, they wouldn't turn on their camera. And so I think my fear, and while I love that and I have a lot of ideas, my fear would be that that's actually taking away from some of them and their ability to feel like they can make those connections. Yeah, that's a really great point, Jenna. Um, I know last year what my team did is we started this thing called enrichment activities and we did them once a day, we each volunteered. Um, we picked a day and you were leading it or you were helping co-host it. And we did all sorts of things like uh, we'd go for a walk together on Zoom. We would do an art project together. We would do a virtual tour on the computer together. We did like a cooking class one day where we like told them ahead of time what we were going to cook and they could join us if they wanted. Um, but it was like the same, I would say like 15 to 20 students every day that hopped on out of our 100. Um, so I think about those other kids who didn't engage and maybe if it was because of where they're living or their situation or they're helping younger siblings. 
Um, so I still think about some of our kiddos, the ones that you're speaking about and, and how to really get them to engage and to have that community with them as well. Uh, I think that's a really good point that you brought up. Well, along uh, some of these same lines, we've heard somehow ideas on how you're using uh, technology to deliver social, emotional, community, and academic content. And I wondered if you, if there's any creative ideas, uh, anything else you want to share about how you've used uh, technology to deliver this content. Also, from some of the online uh, PDs I've taken this summer, a lot of them have started with norms, discussion, online discussion norms, uh, what that looks like, and, and if anybody's thinking about what that looks like. You know, Travis mentioned, or somebody mentioned how there was, you know, we're going to be needing to train our students, train our community members. Oh, it was Aaron, that's right, uh, uh, on, on how to use the technology that's going to be used to deliver this content. So uh, what creative ways are using technology and, and developing norms and things like that? Um, I know that, uh, I don't know, I use Google uh, a lot for everything. That's been our school's platform. Um, and just add on Pear Deck, things that allow the kids to be more interactive. Uh, Padlet has been huge. But just even that outside the box thinking, um, my co-colleague, my teammate, social studies teammate, who's, you know, got twice the experience I have and, and, and somehow twice the energy. Um, he, he, he ended up doing uh, where in the house is, you know, um, Mr. H kind of thing. And so he was always like, you know, in, in engaging with the kids from a different setting. And I think he's already shared how he's going to go around the community that they live in and, you know, be like, guess where in the community, you know, um, Mr. H is and just trying to keep that little intrigue up there to keep kids wanting to tune in. And I think as they, they become, it becomes the class they don't want to miss, you know, like the, you know, the next, I mean, since a lot of, I feel like their generation already watched like YouTube channels and watch, you know, other people playing video games and other people, you know, presenting stuff. I think the, I think that almost can speak to their language if it, if it, it has that semi entertainment piece um, while at the same time helping them feel seen. Flipgrid was a thing that I tried and it went both directions. I had some amazing, you know, results that I couldn't even hardly keep up with. And, you know, a lot of students went, took off with it well. And of course I had some, you know, social, emotional, you know, intervention moments where, you know, even though uh, I had one student who, um, one of my twice exceptional students, I have two twice exceptional students last year that somehow seemed to trigger each other just in the worst way. And it would be like something completely harmless, but they, then there would be like the meltdown and then the just trying to work it out. Um, and, and, and not having them in front of me and, and having so much time pass before I can actually help them resolve the issues made it a challenge. But um, I think for the most part, you know, uh, things like Flipgrid and just those videos that allowed kids a voice um, interaction. Sometimes I had my Google Meetup because this was the time before Zoom was safe. Um, I would just let the Google Meet stay up and just let them have conversations with each other and interact um, while I kind of worked and did things in the background and, you know, you know, chimed in when necessary just to give them that context of, you know, hey, look at my cat, you know, and hey, I'm up in the mountains, you know, and whatnot, and it's snowing up here, you know, bizarre things like that. And I guess just using 
the tools to kind of go beyond what we could have ever done in the classroom, um, though. It's tricky. From my experience last year, I guess I feel that it's a little important to, to back up a little bit because I know we've all started experimenting with a lot of different ways to use technology. But at least from my experience with my class last year, you have to have the first step where you get everyone connected and parents understanding and um, being able to support their students. And I think that ability to leverage technology first comes in everyone having access. And so that gets to the equity piece. And I would just have to go back and echo the need for communication, not just blanket communication. We had a lot of families who several weeks went by and they weren't getting the emails because they couldn't receive the emails. And so they weren't getting information that was important because they didn't have the technology access or understanding to, to understand what was going on. And so I think that communication piece from us in the building who are familiar with what our school expectations are and the school culture are going above and beyond reaching out to families, especially families who speak a different home language as their native language and making them feel informed and comfortable and have access and just building those relationships around trust so that they feel like they're part of their kids learning so that those students are connected and can have access to the cool ways we're using technology to try to engage them. Access and equity are two really major and important points that are being made by Allie. I just want to reiterate, yeah, if students don't have that access to the technology, then everything we do on there doesn't really matter, right? So working in partnership with the communities around us, like how can we get students what they need is going to be such a big factor next year. And that goes back to everything I know. Even just, it was really awesome to see this year how they came out um, in a lot of districts and they were offering, you know, lunch pickup. Like you can go pick up a lunch if that's something you need for all students, regardless of where they fall. And I know there's been districts that have offered that into the summer. So things like this that I feel like these should be things that happen all the time year round anyway, regardless of COVID, you know, but that's just me and my crazy idealism. And I know it's going to be even harder this year with budgets being cut and lack, lack of funding um, is going to impact a lot of these these things that we want to do or things that would be so helpful for our students. But um, as teachers, I think we put a lot on ourselves and we get a lot of a lot put on us. And I know in the spring, I feel like we really rose to the challenge and we we did what needed to be done, right? Like we taught it was emergency learning. It wasn't distance learning. But oh, from what I saw from teachers in my building, like they all did amazing things. And it's really cool to hear from you guys about um, kind of your thoughts of what next year might look like as well as what you did in the spring. Thank you for listening to the first part of our two-part series on returning to school in the fall. We are proud to announce that the most powerful weapon just hit 100 unique listens this week. David and I feel honored to help bring teacher voices to the forefront of conversations surrounding social justice and equity. I wanted to quickly update our listeners on an important action item we left you with a few weeks ago. Unfortunately, last week, Fairtax Colorado, the team behind Initiative 271, announced that they were not able to reach all of the signature requirements to get it on the ballot this fall. Remember, this initiative could have provided millions in funding to education in our state. Please visit fairtaxcolorado.org to learn more about future efforts. For today's episode, 
I want to leave you with this. If you know a teacher, send them a kind message. Give them a socially distant hug. Buy them a beer. Right now, it's a difficult time to be an educator in our country, and teachers need your support more than ever. If you are an educator, I encourage you to get to know your school board members and use your teacher voice whenever necessary. Come back next week for part two of our episode on returning to school in the fall.